And so we're getting down to the last two chapters of Revelation, and I couldn't wait. As this is such an exciting way to, uh, to end the book of Revelation. Now we're, we've, we've turned the corner. We're, we're beyond the millennium and we're looking at the new heaven and the new earth. We're looking at what forever and ever looks like, what the eternal life looks like for those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, the redeemed, the saved. And, uh, and this is exciting. So we're not going to go quick through all this, I'll warn you. Uh, I want to walk slowly through it and just kind of dig in and enjoy it and, and feast on it. And uh, I hope it's the same experience for you. So we're just going to begin uh, in chapter 21, if you find that in your Bibles, the second to the last chapter in your whole Bible. And we are going to look at the first three verses as kind of an intro into the subject. And we'll kind of come back to some of these things. We, for instance, we won't deal with what uh, he's talking about in regards to the sea, and we'll look at that later on. But if you look at verses 1 through 3, and if you've got your Bible, please stand as we read uh, these verses together. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So still using that same imagery that's consistent throughout the whole Bible. In the marriage supper of the Lamb, we looked at in chapter 19. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell, or literally tabernacle, among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we ask as we look at this incredible topic, as we look at really why we're here, what we were made for, and what our destiny is, what our future is in the Lord Jesus Christ. I just pray, Lord, that you would just excite our hearts, encourage our hearts, challenge our hearts, teach us, mold us, make us as we look at your living word in these last two chapters of, of your book of Revelation. We pray in the precious name of that Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, the name above all other names. Amen. Well, about a week or so ago, and this could have easily happened, I think, in the early morning hours, even this morning, I stepped outside. It was likewise very early in the morning, well before any light from the sun appeared in the, in the eastern sky, and, and I was amazed I was, I was stunned. Floored might be a better word. In many ways, in regards to what Terry was just explaining up here a few moments ago, the, the black sky above me just seemed to kind of grow in immensity and was filled with bright, clear stars. And after so many of those cloudy, foggy, rainy days, it really stood out to me. Too many to, to count, too many to take in. And I was 
momentarily mesmerized, I think you could say, and, and has probably happened to you before. I know it's happened to me in similar experiences. The longer I looked at the sky, the longer I stared at that immense sky, the bigger it became and the more that I saw. So I confess, I think indeed, as Terry alluded to, too, a few moments ago, it was... It was cause for a praise party, even a solo praise party. But it was even more than that, because as Terry said as well, suddenly I felt very small. Looking at the vast starry sky, you could say, really changed my perspective. I was in awe of, as the psalmist explained it, the one who counts the stars or literally knows the stars and the number of the stars, is that not amazing? And calls them all by name. I concluded by that that perspective checks, I think, are a very good thing. I want to share a few with you from God's Word Job chapter 7, verse 7, has a perspective check. And Job confesses, he says this, Remember that my life is but breath. The psalmist in Psalm 39, verse 5, has this to say in a perspective check on his life. Behold, you have made my days as hand breaths. Well, what does that mean? That was an expression that meant no longer than the width of an average person's hand. And my lifetime is nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Later on in the psalm, Psalm 144, almost to the end of the book, verse 4, the psalmist has this perspective check. Man is like a mere breath, his days like a passing shadow. And then in the New Testament, James says this almost near the end of his book in chapter 4, verse 14. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Perspective check. Think about that last phrase from the book of James. A vapor, your life, he says, your life is but a vapor that appears for a little while. Now there's a self-esteem booster. But think about what all of those verses, just a cross-section of, of many perspective checks throughout Scripture, think about what they're really saying. And as we think about what they're really saying, let's go back to that whole issue of perspective and, and, in fact, even use a little spiritual logic here. Let's make a comparison as we begin these last two chapters in the Bible by asking a couple of questions. Number one, how long is our life here? Perspective question number one. How long is our life here? Well, we've just gotten a few terms that we could apply to that. Scripturally, we could say, but a breath. Didn't we hear that term used multiple times? Uh, one of the psalmists said a passing shadow. 
And we know James said it because we've already repeated it multiple times. Our life is but a vapor. So how long is our life here? Do you get the idea? Well, let's ask the second question by means of comparison for perspective. How long is eternity? How long is heaven? What Terry was just leading us in, many verses talking about heaven and eternal reality. How long is heaven? Well, I think we can find an answer right here in the scriptures, the, the area that you're open to right now, the immediate context. Look at verse 5. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Now in verse 22, verse 5, we read this, And there shall no longer be any night, as we get into further this whole description of the new heaven and the new earth and the new heavenly city of Jerusalem. And there shall no longer be any night, and they shall not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign. Who are they? Who do you think they are in this verse? You and I, if we know Christ, all of the saved, all of those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life. And they shall reign, how long? Forever and ever. So how long is eternity? How long is in heaven? Remember, we're looking at contrast. How long is our life here? How long is, in he is heaven? We have an immediate answer to that question forever and ever. A bit of a contrast. Now, as you think about the contrast, how then should that affect our perspective? Well, I want you to look back at Colossians because there's an answer here. How should that affect our perspective? There's an answer right here in Colossians chapter 3, the first two verses. Paul says this to us. If then you have been raised up with Christ, have you been raised up with Christ? See, it's a, it's a, it's a question. It's setting up a situation. So if you're part of that, if you then have been raised up with Christ, then everything else applies to you in, these next, in this verse and the next verse. With Christ, he says, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Listen to verse 2. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Now, interestingly, in verse 2, that word set in the, in the original Greek language has the idea of habitually habitually. In other words, make it your consistent habit to set your mind on things above. Yet research within today's church reveals a disturbing picture. One expert writes, heaven is rarely even a blip on the Christian scene anymore. We don't talk about it very much. We don't sing about it very much. And that longing for it attitude, the norm in Scripture for a believer, seems almost strange today, almost extreme. Even some have suggested morbid. Well, I want to make a suggestion to you today as we begin looking at these last two chapters of Revelation. 
I want to suggest that we change all of that beginning today. Because Revelation 21 and 22 are some of the most exciting, vivid, and descriptive chapters in the Bible devoted to the topic of the afterlife, of eternity, of forever and ever, of our heavenly home. So as we dig into this, beginning this morning, and in the weeks ahead, and maybe even the months ahead, let's all take this to heart seriously and lay Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 over it. Because the reality of heaven affects our here and now. That's the gist of what Paul's talking about. Let that eternal reality then affect how you view life now. That's a perspective issue. And this is obviously... John seeing this on the island of Patmos, John writing to first century churches, John also writing across the ages to all believers since, in fact, you and I included in this room. This is obviously written for the earthbound. So this morning, let's get our spiritual feet wet in these first three verses that we've just read together and look at what is in store for believers and how it should begin to impact and, and change our perspective right now. So we're going to look at two intro fundamental truths. Here's number one, or, or foundational truths, I'm sorry could be fundamental too, fundamental and foundational truths. Here's number one. We are shown, firstly, the reality of heaven. So right here at the beginning of chapter 21, as we look into these two chapters that are linked together, we are shown the reality of heaven. Look how verse 1 begins again in chapter 21. John writes, and I saw a new heaven and new earth. John writes the same way that he's written throughout the book of Revelation. I saw this. I saw it. This is something that I really saw. I wasn't dreaming. This is something as, as real as the other things that he's looked at in the previous 19 chapters of Revelation. It's as, it's as real as God's majestic throne that John saw. As, as real as the, the 24 elders that sat around the throne. It's as real as, as, as the marriage supper of the Lamb in chapter 19. This is no wishful daydream. This is no symbolic fairy tale. And just in case there are any doubters, as I just read a few moments ago, God says at, at the closing of verse 5, write for these words are faithful and true. Most likely, John, as he was thinking about this, as he was exposed to this revelation, probably echoing in his head was something that he had witnessed earlier, that he had written about earlier in the Gospel of John. John chapter 14, as he took on this awesome scene. And as we go back to John chapter 14, I think we can gather there three important reality facts from Jesus' own words in verses 1 through 3. And so I'm going to go back to John, and I would encourage you, keep your, your finger or keep something there in Revelation chapter 21. But turn back to John chapter 14. You probably know these words well. 
We're not going to look at the whole chapter or even a big chunk of the chapter, but there's, there's something that we can gather here really, really important about the reality of heaven that really sets that context of John later on now, having witnessed Jesus, having heard him speak these very words, but now later on being shown this vision of the new heaven and the new earth. John chapter 14, just the first three verses, listen, let not your heart be troubled. Remember these words, believe in God, believe also in me. I love every word here. Verse 2, in my father's house are... Now, if you've got a King James, and there were some issues with the Latin and everything, a lot of people translated this mansions. It's not necessarily mansions as the way that we think of mansions, but it literally means dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go and prepare a place for you. Verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Great words, right? Do you believe those? Heaven is a reality, right? So number one, we learn from what Jesus is telling us at the beginning of John 14 that firstly, heaven is a place. It's a place. In fact, that word place is used three different times in those, just those three verses. It comes from the original Greek language, topos, and topos translated there means a real place, a physical place. So not just a dream, not just a concept, not just something produced in your imagination, not a blueprint, not a drawing, not a painting. It's a real physical place where you can go. Many people within, the, even within the church today, there are, there are liberal fractions and people eating away at the authority of God's word that are teaching heaven now is a state of mind. You may actually be in heaven right now. Or heaven is some kind of abstract concept, but it's not really what the Bible's saying. These are all just symbolism. Or heaven is a, is a psychological crutch. It's not a real thing, but you know, if it helps you here on earth, that's fine. It's good for your, your psychological well-balance. I like what Bible teacher Steve Lawson says. He just said it so simply and explains it this way. Heaven is populated by real people. He put the emphasis on real. Entered by real gates, traveled by real streets, and developed with real buildings. It's a real place where God lives. It is the real place from which Christ came into this world and is the real place to which Christ returned at his ascension. Really. <laughs> Secondly, heaven is a place. Heaven is a person. Heaven is a person. What do we see in verse 3? And if I go and prepare a place, Jesus, for you, place, I will come again. And I will receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is why I think so many popular concepts of heaven are borderline ridiculous. We hear 
so many people here just focusing on an expansion of what, of what drives people's pleasure here on earth. From our limited perspective, we transfer that to heaven and say, oh, that must be what heaven is, whatever gives me pleasure here. I just know so-and-so is golfing a perfect game on heaven's golf course with his dead golfing buddies 24-7. Yeah, right? Oh, I just know so-and-so is on the perfect hunting trip in heaven or, or catching a million fish a day on the perfect lake with a perfect fishing pole. Or heaven is always, you know, re reunited with all your pets. <laughs> or you're watching the Super Bowl on God's big, big screen. Yeah, that's what they're doing. That's heaven. Really? Is it? I mean, are we so limited in our, in our understanding that that's the best we can come up with? I mean, maybe some of those elements have some truth to them. I'm not going to discount God. I don't know exactly what it's going to be like up there. But when we begin to only see heaven that way, whatever brings us pleasure here, that must be heaven there. I think we're missing something entirely critical because heaven is a person. Heaven is where Jesus is. To be with him, to be near him, to be engulfed in him. That's why sometimes it's almost humorous and tragic when you talk to people who you know don't know Christ, but they believe in heaven. And the last place they would ever want to go when they die is to just hang out with Jesus. If they didn't want him here, why are they going to want him there 24 hours a day, forever? I had that discussion with a guy one day. He thought that he was really interested in Christianity. And when I threw that truth out to him, he said, okay, I think I've had enough. It kind of scared him. It was like, well, I guess. What was he doing? He, he wanted to know what the benefits of heaven would be for him. He wanted that security and then could continue to live his life on his own here on earth. But when he got to heaven, oh, man, it's going to be like accelerated pleasure and fun and everything else. What about Jesus? And thirdly, heaven is a promise. This is the beautiful thing. This is what Jesus began talking about. So you've got to look at the context. How does the chapter begin? He tells his disciples and tells all of us, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let not your heart be troubled. Why did he say that? Why did he say that? Because he knew that our hearts were troubled? In the original language, the word troubled that we translate in the English means literally to be stirred up, to be very disturbed. Well, why wouldn't our hearts be disturbed with the stresses and the, and the tension of life and all of the things going on while we're on earth? Jesus says it doesn't have to be trouble. Why? Because he's giving us a promise. Because he's saying the reality of heaven, you're going where I'm going, I'm going to bring you there, I'm preparing a place for you, that should affect you now. Because he's saying in present tense, let not your heart be troubled. He's not saying, hey, when you guys get to heaven, no, your life is going to be horrible here, you'll never find any peace, any contentment, any joy, it's horrible. But then in heaven, 
let not your heart be troubled. That's not what he's saying. It's present tense. Right now, disciples of mine, followers of mine, your heart doesn't have to be troubled. Yes, life is tough. You will go through many tribulations. Jesus, Jesus never sugarcoated life. But in regards to bringing heaven into our earthly perspective, yes, that's important. And Jesus makes us a promise. It's a guarantee. It's a certainty no matter what. This is so important, and I think we miss this. When we ignore heaven, when we don't talk about heaven anymore, we get so infatuated with all the stuff this world has to offer, we forget about heaven, we forget about the promise, it doesn't change our perspective, and then we're always troubled because we forget, oh, this is a vapor, that's eternity. That's forever and ever, this is but merely a passing shadow. We forget, don't we? Because that's not a big sell. You put that on a big banner, people aren't going to flock to it. Your life is but a passing shadow. Come on in. That's weird. Is it? Let not your heart be troubled. Somebody said it well one time. So simple, the words. And this was a believer. They said simply this. Who can mind the journey when the road leads to our forever home? Heaven is real. Well, why do we need it? Let's look at the second foundational fundamental truth. And this isn't the only reason why we need it, but this is a big part of it. It's kind of an intro, we said, looking at what we're going to find in these, these two chapters. So here's the second truth. We are shown the reason for this heaven. Look at verse 1 again. So we're back in Revelation 21. You can leave John 14. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. As I told you, we'll get into more why there is no longer any sea. But that's going to be a critical thing when we look at all of the things that are no longer and all of the things that are added in the description of the new heaven and the new earth. But let's concentrate on what's he talking about new. He's using that word over and over again. So that's important for us to understand. What does he mean by new? Why do we need a new heaven and a new earth? Well, we're kind of coming full circle from Genesis uh, chapters 1 and 2. And if we look at 2 Peter, he describes it this way. 2 Peter chapter 3 Beginning at verse 10, we read, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. So it's going to be gone. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Verse 13. But according to his promise, we are looking for a, there's the same word again, new heavens and again, new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter's language, a little more, a little more dramatic, a little more descriptive. Well, why new? Why new? Why do we need this? Well, two reasons. There is a need for a new pattern, we might say. Might express it that way. There is a need for a new pattern. So looking at that word that 
Peter used for new, looking at the word that John expresses for new. In the original language, there are, there are multiple terms that could be used that we would just translate new. So in the English language, our word new is just always new. As oftentimes happened in foreign languages, in particular the Greek language, they have multiple words that we translate the same. So sometimes it can get kind of confusing. The word that John uses here is kainos. It's not the chronological word for new, but it's more the qualitative word. Let me explain. So this is an entire remake when something is new. This is something that's not just new in time, but this is something that's better than before, that's superior in value. That's also reflected in the term passed away, which doesn't mean annihilation, like bloop, it's gone, like we talked about last week that so many people are talking about hell in relation to that, and we know that's not true, but rather passed away as a means of transformation, becoming something of a whole different quality level. It's a new creation. They are newly made, a new heaven and a new earth. Why? Now, why is that the case? Why does God have to completely make something new? Well, I would say the best, simplest answer to that question is just look around. Just look around. Look at your news feed. Drive downtown Portland. Look at what's going on in our world. Look at the changing values, the things that are important to you as a believer, what's happened over the last 10 years, what's happened over the last 20 years. Why are all those things happening? Do you sometimes shake your head and you think, oh my gosh, I can't believe 20, 30 years ago, you couldn't even mention this. Nobody would have agreed to this, and now it's wholesale. Why? Why is it happening? Are you just left behind? Are you just out of it? Are you not in step with the times? Get with it, Christian. Now, if you're in the Word of God and those things bother you because you believe in the absolute authority of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction to your heart and making you grieve because of those changes in values, what you are seeing is what? The product of a broken world. What happened to our world post-Genesis chapter 2? It fell. That's what we usually say, right? It's just one word. We live in a fallen world. What does that mean? Sin entered into our world. That's why come spring, you're going to be doing a lot of weed killing and weed digging. Because our world is tainted. And I wish I could be the bearer of good news, but as we've seen consistently through the book of Revelation, things are going to get worse before they ever get better. And we see that. Though you see the proof of that. If you want to believe otherwise, you're closing your eyes because we see the proof of that as our culture begins to enter more and more dark areas and lose those values that we used to share. It seems like to us not very long ago. But our creation is also 
tainted by sin. We see that in Romans chapter 8, don't we? Do we understand that? I talked about weeds, but there's also other things. Things spoil. There is, there is death in the natural world. There's decay, corrosion, disease. So in a sense, the new heaven and the new earth is kind of drawing us, in a sense, not completely theologically correct, but drawing us back to Eden before sin entered the world. I want you to, to just think of the most beautiful place or one of the most beautiful places that you have ever been to. And as you think about it, just kind of think of, of looking around and, and experiencing that and, and all of the things that you saw and that you did. And I'm not talking about the Facebook post picture, but everything that goes on. A few years back, we, we started a tradition in our family, not, not too long ago, but uh, taking a guy trip. Uh, every year. So just a short little trip, like a, like a long weekend with uh, all of my sons and my grandsons and my son-in-law. And a few years back, we went to a place. So we had to just pick a place. And at that time, we were looking at the government website, and they had a variety of, of ranger cabins and lookout towers and all kinds of cool places way out in the middle of nowhere at the end of five or six logging roads. And we were looking at places high up in the Cascades. And so Joey, one day, you know, he just says, oh, okay, we're going to make a decision and just kind of, let's go here. It looked like a beautiful place. It was called Tempanagos Lake. Anybody ever heard of it? Anybody ever been there? So the neighborhood is south of Diamond Peak. You don't know where that is. South of Highway 58, somewhere in the Umpqua National Forest, up in the Cascades, almost near the top. So we got there way off the grid. I mean, we are miles and miles from any civilization. There's no cabins, no houses, nothing, no cell reception, anything. Going up all these different logging roads, we get to what is a, basically a lean-to. So it's a shelter. It's like a little miniature cabin, and it's right on this lake. And you've got this snow-covered peak directly behind the lake. I mean, all of us got out of the vehicle and went. It was a collective, like, sigh of awe. Most beautiful place many of us had been in the Cascades. It just looked fake. It was so perfect. And so we stood there and we thought, man, we're just, you know, there's probably so many fish in that lake and nobody is here. And it was perfect weather and every, it was just perfect for about five minutes. <laughs> and then sin entered the perfect picture by means of little buzzing things that were black and, and made these big clouds and liked to land on you and hurt you. And they wouldn't stop. We spent one night there. And I mean, you think there's like, a lot of times you've been places and, oh, mosquitoes come out between, you know, certain hours and then you're fine, right? These mosquitoes were 24 hours a day. They were just as hungry in the morning when it was like 39 degrees as they were in the afternoon when it warmed up. I mean, they never took a break. They never slept. They never anything. 
and they literally chased us out of there. We, we posed for one picture. Josh had it on a timer. And we looked like, you know, we're just in paradise. But it was like, that is a fraction of a second that that picture was taken. A second later, it's like this. You know, if we'd have had a second picture, it would have looked wild. We got out of there. We had to uh, just our camping trip, our guy trip, and spent three three additional nights on the Deschutes where we didn't meet one mosquito. <laughs> but that's it's like that. Even if you go to the perfect place, you will find death and decay and, and bugs and weeds and, and sometimes things that you didn't expect. But with that in mind, Think about what's going to happen when things are new. If we think that God has done a great job here, and I certainly do. I talked about looking up at the, at the stars and the sky, and you get out in the woods here or on a river or on a lake or you go out to the coast. I mean, you're, you are seeing God's handiwork. But it's nothing compared to new heaven and new earth. When the curse is lifted and the effects of sin are lifted, there will be no tree with a dead branch. There will be no plants infected with insects. There will be no erosion of the earth. There will be no forest fires. I hope there won't be mosquitoes. If they are, they'll be redeemed, and they sh if they're redeemed, they shouldn't stink. <laughs> so we need a new place. We need a new pattern. Secondly, there's a need for a new presence, and that's what we see in verses 2 and 3. And this is, this is amazing, because it's coming down out of heaven, this, this new heavenly city. We'll talk more about what that is, the new Jerusalem, as we get to a further description of it. But he tells us it's made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. We get that same description again, a bride, pure and, and, and white and, and relational. And, and there's the, the oneness there. It's, a, it's an unblemished fellowship with each other and, and God himself. He, he uses that term, himself, that pronoun, the, the emphasis there being very personal. Don't miss any of this. Because what is he telling us? He's saying he's going to be in our midst. We're going to be like this pure bride. The curse is going to be lifted. Sin isn't going to be an issue anymore. The redeemed will be there. There will be a fellowship with one another and with God that we have never known before. Now think again of the curse in relationships. Think how many times you've been in an environment with someone. It could be a friend, could be your spouse, could be your kids. And everything seems to just be going great. I mean, you're having a great conversation, a great experience. Maybe you're out to dinner with your spouse and there's candlelight. You've had the perfect dinner. The mood is great. And then you say the stupidest thing you've ever said. Right? Have you ever done that? Or am I the only one? 
You say something stupid and then that leads to the whole atmosphere, everything changes immediately. Or you're having a great visit with your kids and you're having fun and everything and then you just blow it. You say something hurtful and the whole atmosphere is immediately shattered. Think of all of the things that plague our relationships in a fallen world. Think of them. Manipulation. Nobody's guilty of that here, I'm sure. Pride, anger, all of your past baggage. Guilt, jealousy, selfishness. Nobody's selfish here, right? Controlling, abusive, smothering, mean, and on and on it goes. That will all be lifted. We're not going to deal with those issues anymore. We are going to have a purity and a, a holiness of fellowship because we are going to be basking in the very presence and glory of God himself. A new heaven and a new earth. The curse will be lifted. It's an amazing, amazing thing to think about. With all that in mind, just as kind of an intro, are you longing for that? I want to suggest, as I mentioned before, that we begin to change something here at Evergreen Community Church. That we think about heaven. That we tell God, thank you for heaven. And that we don't think it's weird or strange to want to know more about heaven, to, to actually long for heaven because that's where he is and that's where he's going to bring us. Are you open to that challenge? Because it can greatly affect the time on earth that we still have. And we'll be talking more about that in the weeks ahead. Let's thank God. Father, thank you for the reality of heaven. Thank you for these last two chapters in your book, the book of Revelation. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would be wide open to embrace whatever you have for us. And Lord, may we, as the Apostle Paul told us, set our minds on things above, not on the things that are on earth. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.